Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. yourself what is happening here this is not my nice little life no you might ask yourself why we were playing this song uh this song you're gonna think i'm joking but this song is by anthony blinken uh who is the secretary of state designate for the incipient biden administration uh and (laughs) and it has come out today that anthony blinken has this sort of um kind of I guess it's not a secret life or anything, but he is he's part of a scene that is sometimes referred to as wonk rock. This, these are policy wonks in, in D.C. who have uh, their own rock bands. And as a number of people have suggested, I mean, it's not terrible. He's not terrible. We're going to go out of this segment also with uh, with that, too. But we're going to talk first about another policy wonk and his music. And then after that, about another policy wonk and his music. And then we'll get back to Anthony Blinken. Uh, or maybe we'll weave him through all this. But anyway, yes. And I should say that his band, uh, and you, you can get two of his songs from Spotify, uh, including this one, which is called Lip Service. Uh, and uh, his band is called A Blinken, like A, initial A, Blinken. But obviously that elides into Abe Lincoln. We get it. Uh, so, yes, the Secretary of State doing dad rock, but kind of good dad rock. All right. So to arbitrate this thing, I should also say this is the nose. We don't usually do it on Wednesdays, but we're doing it on Wednesday. Uh, and to do the nose with us today uh, are Lucy Gelman, uh, editor of the Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink, uh, S-Y-N-C, uh, and Rich Holland, uh, who is principal at CoLab, founder of of Free Center and Commissioner on Cultural Affairs for the city of Hartford. So before we get into Abe Lincoln, if we're going to do that at all, um, it's very confusing, too, because his name is Blitzen. Uh, uh, I mean, his name is Blinken, and there was a band called Blitzen Trapper. I feel like we're like just in reindeer country uh, all of a sudden. <laughs> but, but, um, but anyway, before that, uh, President Obama, 
who is famous for putting out these playlists and book lists and movie lists that exhibit this kind of voracious, uh, culturally discursive set of tastes, which I think are highly guided by his two daughters, um, put out a playlist this week that sort of had something to do with the release of his book, A Promised Land, uh, and had something to do with the music that stayed with him or somehow or other symbolized for him uh, his eight years in his presidency. I will now simply read this list because it's not as long. It's a much shorter list than his lists usually are. Aretha Franklin, The Weight, B.B. King, The Thrill is Gone, Beyonce, um, Halo, Beyonce, At Last, Bob Dylan, The Times They Are Changing, Brooks and Dunn, Only in America, Bruce Springsteen, The Rising, Eminem, Lose Yourself, Frank Sinatra, Luck Be a Lady, Gloria Estefan, uh, Always Tomorrow, Fleetwood Mac, Rhiannon, Jay-Z, My First Song, John Coltrane, My Favorite Things, Miles Davis, Freddie Freeloader, Philip Phillips, Home, The Beatles, Michelle, we, we get what he did there, uh, Sade, uh, sorry, Sherish. Uh, uh, I can't say it. It's too much of a complicated <laughs> set of diphthongs. Uh, Stevie Wonder, a uh, sign sealed, delivered. I'm yours. Stevie Wonder, Sir Duke. You too. Beautiful day. So, Lucy, one of your reactions was yeah. that maybe uh, Barack Obama was trolling us in some way. Explain what you mean by that. This is my theory. This this is totally my theory. So it um, it came out, and I will say. Um, I, I think my mom pre-ordered me a copy of Barack Obama's book, actually. But um, so so I'm excited for it. But I am someone who followed the president's playlist, and also Obama was um, sort of inextricably linked with my coming of age. It was my first presidential election, and and it was a really exciting presidential election. And so when I saw this playlist, I was entirely underwhelmed. Um, it's it's a perfectly inoffensive playlist. There there were a couple um, sort of shoulders shrugging. What's going on here? Moments like Eminem. I I can't see the 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 President Obama listening to Eminem. Um, maybe that's my narrow mindedness. And I will say I am from Detroit, which is where Marshall Mathers is from. Um, but I I just I I looked at this and and there are some wonderful like. Aretha Franklin, unimpeachable. B.B. King, can't argue with that. Um, even Beyonce, Halo maybe wouldn't have been my choice, but I was like, okay, again, pretty unimpeachable. Um, but then we're, there were some pieces where I was like, well, do you need to include you too? And, and if you do, why are you including Beautiful Day? Um, do you really need to include Fleetwood Mac? And if so, why this song? Um, so, so I listened to this and, and I thought, well, maybe like – Maybe he's he's trolling us. Maybe just Sasha and Malia weren't around to help dad. Well, I think that is part of it. But so, Rich, what were your thoughts? So my thoughts are, were, first of all, I scratched my head, right? Um, uh, <laughs> at some of the choices here, right? Um, look, I love Stevie, but Rhiannon, really, they're better choices. And, um, and you can't have, you can't default to Beyonce's at last and have two Beyonce's and therefore skip Etta James because mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's the real. Mm. There's some fundamental flaws in this thing that need to be acknowledged and, you know, and shame on you, Barack Obama. But then I recognize that, um, that I don't think that he's punking us. I think that this was focus grouped. Um, uh, mm. the, the framing here is that these are songs from my administration. And my theory right now is that this was music that was actually playing in the background of, you know, of conventions and stuff like that, um, uh, that might have 
uh, then got called into this, you know, nostalgic look at the uh, at the Obama administration um, with the release of the new book, and you know, and knowing that Joe Biden's going to take this list in a whole other way. Um, uh, I was taking a look also at the summer playlist, um, and the choices there were far more impeccable. You know, I mean, we end up with like some Leon Bridges in there. Uh, you know, some 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 childish Gambino, some really interesting stuff that I could far ease that I have less of a hard time imagining Obama actually listening to. Because, um, you know, he does seem like, as presidents go, a down dude. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that we do need to contextualize that. Um, we're so used to talking about him as the hip president, but, you know, that's an oxymoron. And, um, and uh, so... I cut a lot of slack for the list, uh, even if it were his choice, um, because, you know, presidents are just not that hip. Um, and also, Frank Sinatra, <laughs> luck be a lady is the choice there? Just no. <laughs> There's so many better choices. So, uh, yeah, I, I just, could I just say, uh, first of all, uh, you lived through more presidents than you are, you guys have, I think. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I went through Jerry Ford's glam rock period. It was, it was hard. It was difficult. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he loved that stuff. No, I mean, the truth is, I, I think we underrate Obama even now. I mean, this is a very anodyne set of choices. On the other hand, he, he even if this were a typical set of choices for him as opposed to that summer list many of the songs on that summer list i had to consult sam haddleman the youngest nose uh, panelist and the biggest new music expert about i mean i just, like, didn't even really know some of them and i pay a lot of attention to music um this is a very anodyne list on the other hand it is a list that recognizes you know, the spread of music from Coltrane and Miles Davis all the way forward to Beyonce and, and Jay-Z that, you know, we may not, I, I will, you know, not be able to forgive him for Rhiannon. Um, I mean, uh, or most Fleetwood Mac choices from that era that he could possibly have made. Let's, yeah, let's just hit A3 for a second, just so everybody can be reminded. <laughs> Okay, that's enough. That's enough. You know, but but to have a president who's interested in music, really interested in music, I, I think Obama is more that even than Bill Clinton, who played the saxophone, but I think mainly to get girls. And you feel like his <laughs> musical experience kind of topped out at King Curtis sax riffs and James Taylor albums and stuff that just wasn't really any sense going forward that he cared about it. I mean, I discovered Esperanza Spalding through Barack Obama when she did Stevie Wonder's uh, Over Time. Is that what it's called? That incredible song. Anyway, she did it at one of his White House things, this tribute to Stevie Wonder. And I'm thinking, a president introduced me to a musical artist? I mean, in that way, Lucy, I think we almost take Obama for granted, you know, in a way that he mm. doesn't deserve to be taken. Yeah, is that a question? Yeah, or I just uh, getting you to wondering if you want to respond. Sure. I, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's entirely fair. And I, you know, I think Obama for like Obama was a, a deeply complicated president. Um, it's a deeply complicated office. Right. And I think to go from 
someone, I, I think maybe one of the reasons I was so um, surprised and not in a good way and underwhelmed with the playlist was to go from someone who is just so like such a, such a model for so many Americans, right? Um, to go from that to uh, like a, a stammering Cheeto-faced Neanderthal in the White House, um, who also is, is kind of a white nationalist. Um, and, and like, who knows what Trump's playlist would look like, and, and I don't really want to know. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's fair, uh, maybe a fair point that maybe we've taken Obama for granted. I mean, Rich, uh, you know, just to sort of build on what Lucy just said, one of the things that has bothered me for eight years is that Trump seems to have no relationship. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, I'm really relieved that the Bidens are coming in with two German shepherds because, like, I sort of get the (laughs) idea of having two German shepherds and I don't get the idea of having no relationship to animals, which seems to be where Trump Mm. is. I couldn't, after eight years of his presidency, plus, you know, decades on the scene of public life other than like a song like macho man or something that he's obviously not really it's not really a song he likes or anything i i I can't tell you one thing about donald trump's musical taste and i feel like we've been through this weird kind of a cultural period in the white house um where the white house you know i mean under jackie kennedy and under the obamas you know the white house really was sort of a pivot point for culture and and rich i'm thinking also about your role in the sort of intersection of culture and and what government can do for it too maybe you have some thoughts about that yeah so i think that we've been um we've been living uh these past four years in an anti-cultural space right um where we lived with a guy that was uh you know uh, uh Napoleon self-exiled um, and uh, without, you know, without his accoutrements, right? Um, with no music, uh, just sort of staring uh, into space, um, uh, looking for, waiting for the next opportunity for um, him to be the, the act, right? Um, and, uh, and any little bit that anybody's going to put out right now uh, is going to feel valuable. Now you put it out on Twitter mm-hmm. and you're going to get, you know, I made the mistake of reading the comments and, you know, most of them had nothing to do with the music and had to do with the, the same typical hatred. Um, but I think that that intersection, I mean, culture is what brings it all together, right? I mean, we're here for, for culture. We're trying to sort out um, who we are uh, through this vast range of cultural differences. And, um, and it's the opportunity where uh, we could share something at a table um, uh, with each other and, uh, and grow from there. Um, that's the, the lens that um, we're taking here in the city around what, you know, what culture can do, right? It can be a, a facilitator of conversations, you know, in a place where um, uh, we can grow and learn. And, um, and if we're not careful... Uh, it could also be that place where uh, we accentuate our divides the most. Um, so when I take a look at, at this list, uh, it's the, the positive thing about this list uh, is that it's attempting to take all of these sort of um, cultural cues and, and operate on a level where they could correlate uh, kind of lovingly and um and stand as a possibility for for harmony 
uh, my challenge with it is that it's superficial. I mean, the YouTube choice yeah. is superficial. You know, the Sade choice is the Sade choice is you know is it's cherished the day. It's just not. It's you know it's not this thing uh, that anybody really wants to get behind, right? You know. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so though we bring the cultural, the cultures together, we're not bringing the best of those cultures together, uh, is the challenge that I put forward here. Hmm. Lucy thoughts. Yeah, I, um, I, I would say I agree with a lot of that. The, the one place I, Rich, where I would push back is I, I agree that this has been a presidency pretty devoid of culture. Um, and, and that's like, that is a wound, right? Mm -hmm. um, at, the, at the same time, I think that because of that, there has been, if there's any silver lining to the Trump presidency, and I, I am not entirely sure that there is, it is that um, there has been some culture that has come out across the country from creative folks that is exceptional. Um, and these, there's also been a lot of bad reactionary art, a lot, a lot of bad reactionary political art. Um, I, but I, I would agree also with the superficiality of the list. And I, I think, you know, you named something that I was really having trouble. Uh, like I, I looked the playlist up on Spotify last night. I listened to it twice while I was writing an article. I just thought, you know, there's something that isn't totally sitting with me. And, and that's totally what it is. So, um, well, we can maybe transition from there to um, another example of Washington and music intersecting in an odd way. And yes, as I said at the beginning, uh, Anthony Blinken, who is going to be the Secretary of State, unless, you know, some other weird thing happens and there are no certainties uh, anymore, it turns out that he makes music. Uh, we played one of his songs for you. Uh, I think we have, do we, do we have the other one in there that, so, where it can just be played? Yes, it's A1. All right, so yeah, let's hear a little of A1. Patience is a walking around with you when I know your heart is in mine. Patience is not knowing what to do And the thought that I could be trying harder So give me just a chance to let you feel what I feel Cause my heart is sighing All I want is you, you're all that's real Help me now, cause patience is dying All right, before the panel comments, I just want to say, secretaries of state typically are people like Al Haig and George Schultz and Jim Baker and Madeleine Albright and Colin Powell and Condoleezza, well, Condoleezza Rice was very musical, uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton, John Kerry, Rex Tillerson. I don't know, Rich, there's almost something a little eerie, but also very reassuring about the idea of this guy producing whatever... I mean, it's sort of not bad, and and it's sort of dad rock or something, but it, I, I don't know. What were your like thoughts it. as you hear this, Rich? So, first of all, I like it. It's a little garage bandy, yeah. you know? And there's something kind of sweet about that, right? Um, that it's not overly produced. It's just dude and guitar, right? Um, so to a certain extent, he's putting out content, but 
it's not like he's taken it like overly seriously. Like he, you know, like he paid for a big recording studio and just was over the top and goofy with it. Um, you know, it's a, it's a humble expression. And I think that, um, you know, it's some of our learning, it, it was some of the political learning from, uh, from Nixon, um, Kennedy, uh, the idea that, uh, that they're watching, that the people are watching our leaders in so many different ways right now. And, uh, and that to a certain extent, we're, we're seeking for the guy that we have the beer with, right? Um, you know, that was one of the big things about Obama, about Obama, right? It became that measurement of like, do we want, or maybe it was Bush, do we want to have a beer with this guy as a measure of whether or not um, uh, he truly represents us? Um, and so I find that more and more, um, you know, with talk show circuits and, you know, and all of these things that politicians have to go through these days rather than just, you know, politicking um, and stumping, uh, that there's this ongoing need to to show more and more of who we are that makes us sort of um, uh, likable. Um, and uh, this is just another one of those moves, right? It's, you know, it's, it's, it is akin to Obama sharing his playlist. There's a piece of vulnerability in that. Mm-hmm, yes. uh, that's gutsy, right? And um, whether you actually even like the music or not, it's, you know, we're dimensional folks. And, you know, and if we're creative folks, as if we're expressing creativity as well, then perhaps we're also impact, you know, people with, you know, that could uh, display empathy. Um, and, you know, that process of humanizing uh, leadership buys us, um, you know, some bandwidth, some, some capital, I believe. And, um, and I think that that's a good thing. You know, I think that uh, that being able to to understand who someone is, where they're coming from, is um, is important. Uh, I think that when it gets to the point that it's being staged um, uh, for political expediency, then I've got a problem with it. Um, it's now also becoming so prevalent uh, that it's hard to tell, you know, what's staged and what's authentic. And uh, we're just about at a beauty pageant stage right now uh, with, you know, with folks showing up with their stupid Petricks um, that, uh, that, you know, that that could become problematic very quickly, right? Um, I do uh, want to echo this idea of the Bidens showing up with the dog. Two dogs. Uh, the two dogs, right? And one of them in one in some of the photos looks like it's, it's dogs like the size of a horse. I don't understand that. Jeremy Shepherd could be that big. Um, uh, and some, you know, there's a there's a lesson to be learned about um, about uh, four years of Trump, right? You know that I imagine uh, a Trump with the same ideologies, uh, but that just had. Um, that was a little more socially approachable, right? You know, Trump with the dog um, and, uh, you know, what that would have meant for this country. So, um, so I think that that's a, this is a, a complicated question about, you know, uh, the other role of culture, right? You know, culture as a means of, um, of, of tricking people, of creating a false sense of, of belonging and a false sense of affinity. Um, uh, you know, and, you know, the potential of being um, manipulated 
just by just through um, uh, a culture of identity of you know the the identity culture. All right, so I, I want to come back really briefly at the end of the segment to that whole question that you just brought up. Although Lucy, I feel like we don't have to worry about that with a blinkling, a blinkling, a blinkin. I don't know exactly how I need to elide those words to say it the way that he wants us to. I mean, he recorded it before he knew he was going to be Secretary of State, and and I I. I thought Rich put his finger on something that had struck me, too, which is when you sing something that you wrote, you know, there's sort of an implied vulnerability there. I think of secretaries of state Mm -hmm. as kind of impassive, like, you know, Colin Powell, he's just not going to put out a singer songwriter uh, album, you know, and and I'm I was I I guess. Do you agree with Rich that this is a good thing? It's a good thing for a secretary of state to show humanity. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I may very quickly, I I do. I find it charming. I find it reassuring. I will say I am going into this administration feeling very, very guarded, and I'm very in my uh, super lefty feelings about this, right? But um, but when I hear that someone can uh, can practice a very basic expression of humanity, and that is playing an instrument and singing a song and, and writing a song, I I do find it reassuring. And I want to mention really quickly. Um, you know, every year for the past, I think, four years, the Connecticut Arts Alliance has done something that they call Create the Vote. And they talk to candidates who are running uh, for statewide office about the arts and the role that the arts have played in their own lives. And it's how I found stuff out like, um, you know, State Rep Josh Elliott, who's in Hamden, uh, actually played, was in Fiddler on the Roof. And it was a really big part of why he ended up going into politics. Um, and George Logan was and, and is in a Jimi Hendrix cover band. And that was really important to him when he was a kid in New Haven growing up in the Hill. And I think for politicians, so I agree with Rich on, on the, um, you know, yes, I have a concern about this becoming overly performative and having a, an aspect of pageantry to it. On the flip side, I think there is something to be said about being able to bridge um, sort of disparate interests and disparate understandings of the world through art. And, and that's really important. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, also the music isn't half bad either. I listened to it. So it's enjoyable. I mean, he's not, he's not, okay. We have to do this super quick because I've already screwed up the clock, but I'm going to play a clip to you and I'm going to have each of you just very quickly react sort of yes or no, or whatever Bruno's uh, version of those uh, were in the movie, uh, about whether you think this is performative and kind of fake or whether you think this is a genuine reference. We're listening to John Kasich, um, who's 68 years old, if that's important. I don't don't know whether it is or not uh, on NPR uh, this past weekend. I have talked to Republicans who are not currently holding public office, a significant number, and some who are leaders, and they, have, they basically hold the same view that I have. But again, they seem uh, in the Congress of the United States to be frozen in place. Not all of them, but most of them. Certainly the leadership is toeing the line, and uh, it's a sad day. But, you know, uh, I think it was the Scorpions that wrote a song when the, when the wall came down the winds of change was the name of the song, and we will see winds of change. They'll be blowing through shortly. Okay, John Kasich is so metal, or is he? Okay, really quick, because I'm in a lot of trouble with the producer. Rich, uh, fake or real? Completely performative. Completely like plain to plain. Hmm. All right, Lucy. Yeah, could not agree more with Rich. He, yeah, hit the nail on the mm-hmm. the head. 
Well, it made me, I almost drove off the road. I was listening in the car while we were talking about the Scorpions. All right, we have to go to a break. We're going to come back. We're going to skip over Conan O'Brien. Lucy will be happy about that. Probably Ritual too. Uh, (laughs) And uh, go straight to The Liberator on Netflix. Okay, we're back. Uh, the news today is Lucy Gelman, editor of the Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. Rich Holland, principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center, commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. The Liberator is a four-part, interestingly and differently animated Netflix series uh, created by Jeb Stewart, a well-known screenwriter. Uh, and, and its history is basically that for, ever since 2012, when a book came out called The Liberator, One World War II Soldier's 500-day odyssey from the beaches of Sicily to the gates, gates of Dachau, um, a book by Alex Kershaw, uh, someone has always wanted to adapt it for the screen. And a project kicked around starting in 2013 and 2014 uh, to do it on the History Channel. The budget got very big. They were going to do it as an eight-hour live-action thing. That just turned out to be prohibitively expensive. It languished for a while uh, in turnaround. Uh, and suddenly somebody came up with the idea of doing it for Netflix with an unusual form of animation. Before we get the takes of our panel, uh, let's hear a, a little clip from uh, the Liberator. Uh, the Germans, man. They told him that first we were going to feed him and then we were going to do it to him. Do what? Cut off his nuts. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, tell him, tell him we're not interested. Tell him we already bagged our limit. Tell him they're too small. <laughs> <laughs> tell him it's a lie. Tell him the Germans aren't coming back. You guarantee it. Sir, are you sure you want me to tell him that? Tell him those men are the grandsons of the greatest Indian warriors to roam the American plains. They killed mountain lion, hunted buffalo. Tell him those men they're the descendants of the powerful Mexican army that defeated the French on Cinco de Mayo. those men, they're sons of Texas Rangers. They brought the rule of law to places where only killers and thieves lived before. Tell them the Nazis are never going to hurt him again. Because tomorrow we're going to find them and stop them. There now, doesn't that feel better? Don't manage to have to walk around covering his privates. All right. So before we get into the visual style of this, because I'm very interested to hear your thoughts about this, but um, just kind of give us a sense of how you reacted overall to what you saw of The Liberator. Lucy, why don't you get us started? Oh, um, not a fan. Not not a fan. Do I need to say more than that? <laughs> it's entirely your choice. Um, it, I mean, it, so here's here's the thing, right? I would like to uh, cancel cancel culture, right? So if, if someone wanted to make this work and had the capital to make this work, we live in a society that depends on money and they should go ahead and make this work. However, when I was watching it, I would say the question at the forefront of my mind was why was this made? Um, followed by how much of this do I have to watch? So I, 
I mean, I, I found it aggressively male. Um, it's, it's also, so it's a story of the 45th Infantry Division. And I did some reading. So if, if there is a redeeming characteristic to the show, it's that it, it got me um, doing some reading about this division that is actually super interesting. Um, and, but I felt that none of that came across because it is ultimately, the way I, I see this four episode series is ultimately this, this thing that ends up being a heroic white male narrative where the people of color kind of fall into the background. And I've, I, I mean, I was really disappointed by that. Um, I was really disappointed that the protagonist looks like someone that I went to prep school with who probably was on the lacrosse team. You know, I, I looked up the actual, um, I, I don't think general is his ranking, but um, he, uh, he looked very different. And of, of course, like artistic license is a thing, um, but seeing the need for them to make this uh, sort of like chiseled, very handsome dude also kind of irked me. Um, and, and then I, I don't like things that glorify the military industrial complex at the end of the day. Um, so, so that was sort of everything that for me was not, for me, it's a, it's a thumbs down. I would not recommend it to, uh, to my best friends or even my not best friends. We should say, uh, apropos of the, the story that uh, Lucy's refer- referencing, they were known as the Thunderbirds. Uh, they entered combat late in the war when the army had relaxed some of its discriminatory recruitment policies in order to get more bodies onto the battlefield. So it was a unit that included a group of white cowboys, Mexican-Americans and Native American soldiers from over 52 tribes drawn from across the Western Plains states. Um, so, yeah, Rich, what was your reaction? So, um, uh, unlike Lucy, I watched it all. Um, I was going to give up after the second one. Um, <laughs> then uh, I reminded myself um, in the wee hours of the night, and maybe it's like that 4 a.m. coma thing, um, that like, actually, you know, a good war movie is a good war movie. So let's take this out. And, um, and while I completely uh, agree uh, with Lucy that I do not um, uh, appreciate uh, movies that glorify um this uh, this military complex, this industrialized military complex, there is, there are very few films that I've seen, you know, uh, past like 1955 or so that actually do that. Um, most of them uh, during that sweet spot of when I love films um, were highly critical of, you know, of military. They're highly, they, um, so many of them take the uh um uh the um the road to dark what is that uh that conrad book again um heart of darkness the heart of darkness right you know so many of them go down that road and this one started to go down that road right um uh and it just kept getting bleaker and bleaker and bleaker as the as the uh, series went on. And uh, I'm not going to give away the ending for those who are not going to take our recommendations and watch this anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it ends on a note uh, that I think that they were going for a like high heroism, and uh, that ended up to me being like American elitism and it, and you know the sense of American asset. Uh, essential um, uh, American, American exceptionalism um, uh, that was off-putting. Mm. If I listen to even the clip that you shared, um, uh, that we shared on the show, 
there's the setup, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the all the white guys are there to be the leaders who instill law and order, right? You know, we're the law and order guys. We're the cowboys who come in and save everything from hellish bedlam. Um, then uh, then there are the Native American guys. And if you watch throughout this movie, it's every Native American cliche that you could possibly come up with, right? You know, it starts off as like the most defiant of them all, the, the guy that was, you know, drunk in the bunk and, um, and uh, that can hear the wind and see through the fog, you know? Um, that's sort of like um, earth hero. Um, and, uh, and, you know, all the Mexicans cheated cards, you know? So it, it was set up in these kind of like absurd and, um, and fundamentally racist um, ways, uh, you know, while, eventu- while eventually lifting up a couple of folks. But the fundamental piece of this is that, um, uh, that the white guy saves the day, you know, and, uh, and that, um, that the people of color... Uh, all that they achieve is through the good graces uh, of the white guy who lifts them up. Um, uh, the white guy does all the crazy heroic stuff um, uh, and um, and does things that are so anti uh, the military that would ordinarily lead to cart marshals, right? And uh, yet, uh, because it's done with, you know, the chisel-chinned um, blonde guy, uh, the chisel jawed blonde guy is okay, you know. I, I, you know, I just just because we're going to run out of time here, I want to just quickly. I'm, I'm not really pushing back against what you guys are saying, although I do think that there are a lot of moments where the series kind of redeems itself. I thought the third of the four episodes was especially. It's this mm-hmm. most of it is this very hypnotic sequence shot in the snowbound Vosges Mountains between France uh, and Germany. By this time, the chisel chinned guy is a major. He's really not in a position to be heroic at all. In fact, he's back uh, at some kind of home base. Uh, everybody else is in a lot of trouble uh, up there in those mountains on one of those missions that's not terribly meaningful, too. That's established at the beginning of the episode that it's a, it's sort of a doomed mission. Uh, it can't accomplish what it's supposed to. The chisel chin guy tries to tell his superiors that they won't listen or they have other things to worry about the way it goes on in war. There is a moment of surrender, which you don't see that much in movies about American war hi- heroism, but the American soldiers uh, have to surrender to the Germans at a certain point. I thought there was more going on there than just simple American triumphalism. I agree that it does, you know, fall into a few of those traps. Uh, We have a short amount of time left because I screwed up the first segment so bad. But I do want to hear both of you talk about the visual impact of this. This is this is being. Let's start with uh, Lucy. This is actually it uses something different from what you might associate with the kind of human animated fusion of those uh, Richard Linklater films. it's actually a whole new technology. How, how did it work for you, Lucy? It, it didn't. Okay. Um, I, it, it felt sort of like a video game. But the, but the thing is, so people, uh, uh, one, one person, my partner, um, and I were, were talking about this. And it's not because I'm animation um, or anti the style. I'm actually really, really excited about styles that exist outside of live action and just the straight up... Um, you know, filming people. Um, I think what so disappointed me, and I and I love graphic novels. I should add that. But I think what so dis- disappointed me was I was waiting and waiting and waiting 
for the magic that can exist in animation that can't really exist in other forms to happen. And it didn't happen. Um, and I actually thought a lot about um, Hayao Miyazaki's The Wind Rises, which is also a film about World War II, um, that is so magical and so interesting, even though it's about someone who designed planes that killed a lot of people. So it is also a film very much about the military industrial complex. And, um, and so this just didn't, it didn't work for me. Um, I, I don't know if it would have worked better if it were live action. Mm -hmm. Yes, the, the thing is, the new thing is called trioscope enhanced hybrid animation, which involves something other than essentially drawing over human forms, which is what you would see in some of the kinds of movies that have preceded it that use something I think called rotoscope or something along yeah. those lines. So yeah, Rich, uh, give us kind of your sense of the visual impact, and then we're going to break. We, start, we certainly did. Uh, I done a fair amount of rotoscoping, um, and uh, and I love this digital this digital technology and what it promises to do. Right, you know where promises to bring us and um and it promises to bring us to a kind of uh like real intimacy that you just can't get in the natural world like a super realism is a, is a piece of the promise it promises to bring us to this magical fantastical place um neither of these uh were done by this film and um what ended up happening is you know it felt sort of cheap it felt under detailed and um, the renderings were inconsistent at best. And, um, and uh, it summed up this very fundamental thing that I, that I have about films that are this linearly narrative, that um, if the process of making the film takes over the film, um, you've lost something. You know, a, you've interfered with the storytelling and that's what this technology, the use of this technology in this way did mm -hmm. for me. It made the, uh, the, the filmmaking process uh, so forefront uh, that it, it prevented some of the early emotional connections uh, that I, I could form with the performances. And it took into uh, that, third, that third episode uh, before, you know, I could get on the other side of the technology. Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, to be with the characters. All right, we have to stop there. It's called The Liberator. Uh, panelists don't recommend that you watch it. Producer Jonathan McPants uh, and I think maybe you could possibly consider it anyway and not be entirely disappointed. All right, so let's take a break and we will come back with some recommendations. We're back. I have to go quickly because I screwed up the clock, as I mentioned before. Uh, so Cat Pastor, as usual, uh, giving thanks for Cat Pastor there in the studio, making the whole show run so great. Uh, and uh, thanks also to uh, Jonathan McPants. Uh, he is the producer of this uh, episode and usually the producer of The Nose. And sort of as a bridge into recommendations, on Saturday, we are going to rerun a show that we aired on Tuesday. It actually comes from 2016. Uh, it's a show we did uh, about the art of losing. Uh, I don't know. I, I just uh, was so charmed by the show and intrigued by it. Uh, and you'll hear Irene Papoulos, Irene Papoulos' greatest soliloquy ever. So uh, catch up with that show, also produced by Jonathan and including an essay by him. All right. Some recommendations from our great panelists, uh, Rich Holland and Lucy Gilman. Rich, why don't you go first? Real quick. Um, it, for me, it's hands down this week. Uh, 
go watch Beasts of the Southern Wind. Um, phenomenal story. It actually gets um, that magical, uh, that magical realism and the subtlety of um, of how we interact uh, with technology in a movie that's just full of heart and full of like love and beauty. Um, I don't know how I missed this uh, the first time around, um, uh, and I'm going to probably see it again this week. It's actually, I think it's Beasts of the Southern Wild. Uh, oh, did I say when? Sorry. Yeah, it's, uh, yes. It's that's Beasts all right. I got the Stevie Wonder Wild. song. I got the Stevie Wonder song wrong earlier. It's overjoyed. <laughs> so, uh, so we're tied. Uh, so, yes, uh, 2012, very much acclaimed film. Uh, how about, uh, uh, did you want to say one, one more thing about it? Just give uh, Rich uh, people a, a sense yeah, of it? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's a story of this six-year-old girl named Hush Puppy, right? And and her dad, Wink. Uh, and um, they live in, you know, what feels like this Mississippi Delta space. And they're perpetually getting ready for, you know, for what is inevitably the, the end of the world. And, um, you know, and uh, it's all about how a single dad raises his daughter with this kind of fierceness, this toughness, and this intense, intense love. Um, and, uh, and raises her to be all powerful and, uh, it's the ultimate in black girl magic. All right. Uh, Lucy Gilman, what are you going to recommend? Um, yeah, so I have two. The first is a podcast. Um, so it's not a new podcast, but I was, it's new to me. Um, it's called Boom Lawyered and it's, um, hosted by Jessica. Jessica Mason Piclo and Imani Gandhi. And they, um, basically Imani, um, reports from the Supreme Court. She um, is a brilliant lawyer herself and breaks it down so normal people like myself can understand it. Um, and and they um, report on what the Supreme Court is doing. And there are all of these cases that have been going on uh, where there were not eyes on them because there was also the election and everything leading up to the election. So I can't recommend that highly enough. And, and the other... Okay, just so, um, just so people get it too, I believe it's boom, exclamation point, lawyered, something like that's that. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. boom, exclamation point, lawyered. Um, and you can follow Imani Gandhi at Angry Black Woman, or um, I think Jessica Mason Piclo is at Hegemami, like hegemony, mm-hmm. but he- hegemom. It's a joke. All right. Um, and, uh, and, and then also uh, this time of year, I often return to How We Became Human, uh, which is by Joy Harjo. Um, it's an older collection of her poetry that spans 1975 to 2002. And it is, um, it's, it's just really exquisite and very moving. So I recommend that very highly. How We Became Human, Joy Harjo. All right, so we were going to talk about the end of the run of late in late night television of Conan O'Brien. Uh, we didn't have time, and neither panelist particularly wanted to anyway. I don't think uh, I am going to recommend if you've got eleven minutes to spare, uh, you can track it down very easily on YouTube. Uh, a bit involving it's I think it's from about twenty seventeen. Him and Tom Cruise driving around in London with Conan at the wheel. Uh, it is clearly a a riff a little bit on on James Corden's Carpool Karaoke and Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars, except that. Things are going very, very wrong on this car ride, and they go wrong in a whole bunch of different directions uh, over the course uh, of those 11 minutes. So if you have a little patience, it's sort of cringe comedy at first, uh, and then uh, it 
gets even weirder and wilder. Um, apropos of the conversation we've been having uh, about uh, the Thunderbirds and the Liberator, um, I, I've watched, and this is a flawed movie, but I, I, it might be worth your time. The movie Hostiles uh, came out a few years ago. Uh, it's um, you know, It's got its own storytelling issues. It's a 2017 Western. Uh, it stars Christian Bale uh, and Wes Studi as people who have been dire enemies, uh, both of them rather brutal fighters in the war uh, between Native Americans uh, uh, and White Cavalry uh, and Rosamund Pike. Uh, it's uh, very much, and Ben Foster in one of his like really horrible person roles. Uh, it, it, it's, it's got its problems, but it does say an awful lot of things. And maybe it says some of the things that we wish the Liberator uh, said uh, a little bit better. Uh, and uh, is is definitely worth your time anyway. So um, and then lastly, uh, we talked a few weeks ago about uh, Fargo season four. This is the one dominated by Chris Rock and Jason Schwartzman. Even if you don't watch the whole rest of the season, the series, I think you could just watch season four, episode nine. It's called East West. It's shot in black and white in a really fascinating way. It has the kind of David Lynch dream sequence uh, quality to it. Uh, and uh, I would recommended. It might make you want to watch the whole series too. Well, listen, thanks to uh, all of you who listened. Thanks to uh, Jonathan and Kat for their work. And certainly thanks to our great panelists, Rich Holland and Lucy Gelman. We will be back with more in the days to come. And talking about that, and talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah